When people are being focused on university studies for the sake of getting a job, rather than to learn to think and to reason, that has undermined it. And I think it's become obsolete in the eyes of a lot of people thinking about study because they're thinking, oh, where's the value here? I'm going to get a debt, am I going to get a job? Oh, well, then it's not worth it. So we're not getting critical thinking. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with my co-host, Brad Garner. Hey, Brad. Hey, Tiffany. Glad to be here. For all of our listeners, if you remember last week, we were talking to the co-authors of What Undermines Higher Education and How This Impacts Employment, Economies, and Our Democracies. So we have back with us this week, Stefan Popanici and Sharon Kerr. Welcome. Hello from Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, it's wonderful to join you. Thank you. For our listeners who didn't get a chance to catch part one, I would strongly encourage you to go ahead and press pause here, go back, listen to part one on your favorite podcast provider, check out our website with additional resources, digitaltolearn.com to support last week's episode, and then continue on with this part two. We're going to get right back into the show on the Digital to Learn podcast. Earlier, Stephen was sharing about the image that he has in his office space to look at if he's feeling cynicism and needs some inspiration there. What I love about both of you already is, yes, there's passion and critique that you see and that is you know, really bold in front of you. But instead of just limiting it to office conversations and frustrations or maybe even leaving the field, mm. you turn it into action, like big bold, courageous action that does serve students and your colleagues, the field of higher ed well. So that's what we're digging into a little bit further is the book and some of the other things that you've worked on together. So I'll give it back to Brad to kind of inquire about the book, but I just love that visual of not seeing you just banging your head against your hand, <laughs> but looking at that picture for inspiration, looking to each other and actually making change. It's beautiful. Thank you so much, Tiffany. But just to add something, it is important to turn everything into action. When I visited Sharon's group, most people there had disabilities and most of them had for the first time in their life a job. And that was changing their life forever. And when you see that, that you have the privilege to help someone grow and then see a different horizon, I think, yes, it's all good to be critical and then to have an active critique in mind, but you must do something for those who need. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We had 150 staff and so we had staff who were blind doing transcripts for students wow. who were deaf. We had staff who had multiple disabilities working as researchers. We had staff on the autism spectrum who were doing image descriptions for awesome. students who were blind. 
And so it was working to the strengths. And I say half had disabilities and half thought they didn't have disabilities because I think we all have abilities and we all have disabilities. And if it comes to marathon running, I am certainly disabled. (laughs) So let's do a little fast forward now. You've been colleagues for a while and somebody along the way says, hey, let's write a book. How did your recent book come to fruition? Mm -hmm. Stephen, I'll let you answer this one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the first thing I want to tell you about that book was that was a bit ahead of the times. And and what we were able to see was that you have this trying time and and all the big challenges ahead. And then too often academia was living in a parallel world that was mm-hmm. self-imposed. Mm-hmm. And, and we all knew what is happening. This is the drop in quality mm-hmm. in education, turning education into a checkbox that students can buy for an entry job. And then the idea of education is completely removed. And then this mm-hmm. comes with serious implications for our civil society. We lose civility. After we wrote the book about how this happened, influenced higher education, I'm afraid we've seen what happened with authoritarian leaders across the world. The rise of fascism, the idea that fascism is going to be back as a serious concern at that time, was completely dismissed. What are you talking about? Fanciful, it would have been. So was this some of tensions that we said, well, we have to, to do our best to write a warning about what can happen? Well, unfortunately, it happened. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And when we wrote the book, it was really in the... Um... It was becoming big business. You know, it was, I think it was the second major export for Australia at the time. Mm-hmm. And that was what was happening. It was seen as a commodity. And it was that shift from it being a public good to being to the commodification of education. And I think that that was one of the big things that stirred us on at the time. But so a lot of the stuff that Stefan and I were saying in the book and a lot of the very big ideas and the, the, the history that comes through this is Stefan's knowledge and his understanding of history, which is unparalleled to anyone who I've met in my life. But at the time when we were saying that the storm clouds are coming, mm. people thought, <laughs> you're ruining the party go away they just, you know they just they, they yes. just you know, and, um, and it, they didn't see that higher education was being undermined mm. they didn't see that the quality of education was being impacted on they just saw money 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 you know and so it was before as Stephen said before it's time I really believe that the book So with all that going on, is there a sense you think that higher education is becoming somewhat obsolete and self-destructive? Stefan, you go and then I'll say because I've got strong ideas on this. I think to give you a, a very, very quick answer, I don't think it's becoming obsolete, but I think it's self destructing. And then it cannot be obsolete because now we need more than ever the capacity to have free inquiry, look at our greatest challenges, um, climate change, on a rise of fascism, 
and then so on and so on, increasing inequality, and then we can go on and on, unfortunately, and then we all know how this impacts. We have right now a horrifying war in the heart of Europe. No one could imagine that this is possible just years ago, although fascism was on the rise in Russia. And then we need these spaces where people with knowledge and ideas can discuss and then be prepared and create graduates able to deal with this complex life that we have ahead. But we are not doing that. We are self-destructing. And then I think it's wrong to look at the history of higher education for the simple reason that it wasn't doing that well. For example, when Hitler came to power, European academia was not doing well. But we know what can be done when we think about the successful revolutions that happened around universities and then how they pushed culture ahead. Very difficult question. Can you give me two more hours? <laughs> we would love to. We would love to. Yeah, we'll leave it recording and step away and come back every once in a while. <laughs> Sharon, what do you think? Yeah. We used to say to people that you go to university to discover, to learn from masters of knowledge and understanding. And now we're saying, Go to university so that you learn these skills so you can get this job that we don't know exists. And so Mm -hmm. when people are being focused on university studies for the sake of getting a job rather than to learn to think and to reason, that has undermined it. And I think it's become obsolete in the eyes of a lot of people thinking about study because they're thinking, oh, Where's the value here? I'm going to get a debt. Am I going to get a job? Oh, well, then it's not worth it. So we're not getting critical thinkers. We're not getting people who need to bring this world out of the mess it's in at the moment. Where are the voices of the academics globally with everything that is going on at the moment? And that's with global warming. We we need people who are bold with the wars, with the pressures, We need people who have that ability rather than just vocational training. And I think that this shift to education from higher education to vocational education has been because of market forces. So in the midst of all that, knowing how reluctant higher education is to change, what do you predict for the future? I think higher education has changed profoundly in the last decades. It all started with a push of World Trade Organization to turn officially education into a commodity and then signing national and international agreements where education was bought and sold. So when this became a subject of trade agreements, Mm. education lost. And, And I think It's one of the things that is keeping academia from finding sustainable solutions for the future is that you have these polar positions. One is the academics like to say, well, we are the victims of politicians. Politicians like to hate academia for a variety of reasons. And then this is the most unpopular position one can take is they're all responsible. Academics for not being honest about what is happening. Mm being quiet because it's more convenient when education is destroyed with silly solutions and then a group think and then pure ignorance about what we should do in, in higher education. 
So I think it would be important to have a better future, it would be crucial to have an honest discussion about what happened. And this is where our book comes. That was the intention. Let's look be behind the Potemkin village and then see what's really there. I think we need some soul searching. Mm. We have had a situation here in Australia with the COVID situation and mm -hmm. the universities did not receive the government support that other sectors did and thousands of academics actually lost their positions. Stefan, how many in total was it that over Australia lost? Was it 17,000 in total from universities? Oh, no, no, more, more. And, and it's, it's hard to say because Universities now play with academic positions and, and casual stuff and so on. So it is really hard to say. But anyway, in tens of thousands, this is what we are talking about. So that has changed the nature of higher education in Australia. So you've got a lot of people now that the borders are open and the market's open again for international students, which I'm not against that. I'm not against that. I'm just saying that it's part of the picture. It's not the whole picture. It shouldn't be the driver for why we learn. We should be opening up to international students to share the knowledge, to share what we have. But because of that, new people are coming in. They're getting young academics. And so a lot of the wisdom that has been there has really been gutted from the higher education sector. So I think that we're going to see a continuation of people grabbing onto fads. It was MOOCs back at the time when we wrote the book, everyone, you know, a MOOC here, a MOOC there, and, you know, how are we going to cope with it? And, and you're not cool with it. <laughs> and you're not cool unless you've got a MOOC, you know, and how much your MOOC. <laughs> so I think it's going from there and now everyone's into micro-credentials, which in my profession, that's what I'm into too. But I think that when you're talking, Brad, about it being obsolete, I think the idea of coming into an institution and staying there for four years and then learning everything you need to know to go and do something else, I think that idea is gone. If people are only looking for knowledge and skills for a job, then that's where the micro-credentials will come in. And to do a degree that is focused on thinking is much more expensive. So a philosophy degree or a history degree or even an English degree are much more expensive than if you're doing a science or a maths degree. So they're political influences on higher education. I think that that is the case globally. And this monoculture that is engulfing higher education across the world is so every university wants to be like Harvard. You're in China, you're in Australia, you are, that, that's the thing. It's just the same models, the same solutions, the same thinking. But this comes with very interesting effects. And, and I just remember when Sharon was talking about this fascinating book I read. It's called, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Engineers of Jihad. And then he's talking about the very strange phenomenon. So two researchers looked at the degrees terrorists had. And they noticed that the majority come from engineering. And then they went further and much more in depth. It's a whole book. I'm not going to tell you the whole book. But what they found was that the assumption is that, of course, they are engineers because they create stuff that goes boom. It's, no, they are the ideologues. They don't deal with the mechanics of terrorism. 
And then what is very interesting is that they studied jihadist groups, and then most of the terrorists are al-Zarqawi, was an engineer, and so on and so forth. But after that, they looked at extreme left in European history. We had the Red Army, whatever, and then uh, again, disproportionate number of engineers. They stopped at explaining why this is happening, because it's very interesting. And my theory is that when you cut off the integral part of what it means to be a good human, you get monsters. And then people with a lot of knowledge and a lot of brain and no values, no consideration, no compassion, no empathy, just achieve the goal. And then this is what we often do in our universities. Give us the money, this is the goal, and then off you go and get a job. This is what, this is one of the things. It's not the whole life. No one I know I've met in my life is functioning only as an employee. You're a Mm -hmm. husband or a boyfriend or whatever. And I truly wish we didn't wait until there were such pressures or crisis moments to make the case for values. If you have to make a case for values, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like right now there's some major Mm -hmm. enrollment struggles in the circles that Brad and I work in. And these conversations are being had, but there's a lot of stress right now to just bring in more students and do some of these, I don't want to say flashy things, but to get on board with the VR and the XR and the AR and to do all of this to bring more folks. But really we all at the core know why we work where we work and what kind of value we really want to bring to the students. And it's so much more Mm. than the latest (laughs) technology or promise of a job Mm. or that I wish we didn't wait until the pressure. Because you're selling the students a pup as well. And What we've seen here during the COVID crisis is that people with very good jobs who have been left unemployed and their whole identity has been tied up with being a Qantas pilot and that job had just overnight left. Whereas if your focus is on teaching people to think, giving them space to think, giving them access to the truth, in this global mess of fake news and fake fake information, but giving them that access to that pure goblet of truth so that they can then become ambassadors for care and ambassadors for supporting humanity going forward. That's going to make the world different, not if they can make a widget or not. <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking, for our listeners, if you've been listening to this conversation and Mm -hmm. the depth of thought that Sharon and Stefan have shared with us today, and you're Mm -hmm. not motivated to go out and get their book and buy it, then there is something seriously wrong. So go out and buy their book and read it. Talk to your colleagues. It's the next book that we want them to buy. The first book, they shared their expectations for what could be they said that it happened so now it's really book two (laughs) which i'm putting the pressure on them it's book two that they need to go out and we'll give them like three months to write this next book and we'll have them back on the (laughs) 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 
I think that we could probably do it. Stefan, I think three months was our timeline actually for writing the first book. Yeah. Yeah, it no, really was. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Wow. It was very intense work. You should see us also on disagreements. That's really a funny <laughs> thing to watch. <laughs> Oh. Can I tell you very briefly, because it's relevant for this discussion. Sure. Yeah. So my father was a hoarder of books to extraordinary extent. And then he was also a librarian. And then when I was a child, I was getting lost in his library. And then I also had access to what was called the wing of forbidden books that communists didn't like. So that was my favorite section. So I was very lucky. But it's very interesting for me to see that the extreme neoliberalism is very similar with Soviet communism. And then we disagreed on that. We talked a lot about this when I said, you know, actually this neoliberal solution goes in a perfect circle to meet the Soviet communism. And then one of the examples I used in my defense was an example of an academic in the UK. And then he wrote an article in Times Higher Education, how he noticed the same similarity. He, he was very familiar with Russia. And then he said, that's exactly how they used to work before it all went down. And he translated a report to the Politburo, whatever, and changed just here and there, rather than the great leader, he was saying the vice chancellor or the president of the university, rather than the party was, he was saying, our university. He got it back with perfect. That's the best report you ever wrote. He closed the, the article saying, well, we have to keep perspective that at least now we can say whatever we want in our university. So it's not like Soviet Russia. And after that, he comes with another article in Times Higher Education. And he said, well, I was wrong. After the first article, I was called by human resources to be sternly warned that I shouldn't express these kind of opinions. So, yes, that's also related to um, why we wrote the book and then how our ideas come together. We don't necessarily agree on everything, but we work well. Yeah. Well, I would encourage you to strongly consider another book. Um, <laughs> whether you choose to do that or not, we would love to have you back on this podcast again, because you have given us so much to think about, and that's what we love so much. So thank you for that gift today. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. Oh, I'm thinking of colleagues that will you know, hear these episodes and be like, why didn't they ask them this and this and this and this? And so you just have to come back. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. We'd love to. We'd love to. The Australian yeah. US time is tricky, but maybe we'll send some coffee or something over there for the two of you and we can do this again. <laughs> Let's keep the coffee for when we meet in Australia, okay? That would be perfect. Uh, oh, perfect. Yes, I forgot. And then just look at us as your two new Australian friends and always honored to join you. And isn't the right Thank order in, isn't the right order in Australia a flat white? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Brad, you're so <laughs> you're speaking the lingo already. <laughs> I'm gonna do my homework. I ordered many of those in Australia. Oh my <laughs> Yes, yes, indeed. Thank you folks so much for being with us today. It was a pleasure. No, thank you too. Thanks a lot. Thank you everyone. Thank you so much. Well, you heard it here. We are absolutely determined to get Sharon and Stefan back on this show for some future episodes. But for now, we are gonna sign out. We'll see you next week with a new guest on the Digital to Learn podcast. 
Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.